Thank you, Bob. Appreciate it so much. Got a long way to go today. Should we get started? All right. Good things. I'm excited. Are you? About the Word of God. Here's my little clicker. <clears throat> We're making good progress down the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So far, we made it almost to verse 11, which I'm pretty excited about. There's so much involved in this study, for me anyway, that I'm really enjoying, I hope you are, uh, that impacts our ability to appreciate the New Testament, the Gospels, the ministry of Jesus Christ. So we're going to continue on. We've uh, gotten to the point where we're looking at five good kings. There weren't a whole lot of good kings. So after the The death of Solomon, Rehoboam, his son, took over. There was a civil war that split the kingdom. We talked about that. I'll do it again. Not all of you have been attending faithfully <clears throat> online, so we kept just a touch or here. The ten northern tribes ceded from the Union <clears throat> called Samaria. The two tribes in the south, a few others called Judah. So Israel in the north. Judah in the south, after 722 B.C. and the destruction of the north, they went into exile. They were taken by the Assyrians and spread throughout the uh, Assyrian Empire. So the northern kingdom never had any good kings, although God sent prophet after prophet after prophet. They continued consistently to refuse the word of God. But God didn't cease, did he? Loving them, they turned away from God. Was that God's will for them? Absolutely not. Why would God send a prophet and say, come back, if it was God's will for you to turn away? God's not schizophrenic. He means what he says. If he says, come back, he wants you to come back, right? And the good news is, he always wants you. God loves you. God wants you to serve him and know the joy of serving him. So uh, there you have Elijah, Elisha, Hosea, and Amos, prophets to the northern kingdom. Now Judah, much smaller, pretty much just those two tribes. There were a, a handful of good leaders, but the list is longer of those leaders who turned away from God. So here's five out of the 19 or 20 down there. So of the 40 kings of the two M, uh, kingdoms, <clears throat> You have five that are any good, which is only 12.5%. Five out of 40. Not a, not a good percentage. I mean, think about it. So we look at what's going on in the world globally, and we look at the corruption in leadership and the corruption in our own systems here. It's, it's nothing new. And we can be all upset about it, and we should be, right? There's a lot to be upset about. However, we know God is still on the throne. We still have work to do. God is with us regardless of what political structure we find ourselves in. So as we <clears throat> keep in mind these, we're going to go back and look at uh, at least the exile of Judah in 586. There's some language in there that's very important for us in the New Testament. We're going to make our way down to Hezekiah today. I feel pretty good about that. Last week, we got all the way down to Jehoshaphat. And I love the fact that he brought people together to pray and worship God in times of trouble. And it made me uh, remember this scripture in Hebrews chapter 10, which says, don't neglect meeting together. Now, I know that because of the, the COVID situation 
and churches were shut down. You could go to Costco, but you couldn't go to church, right? Uh, we want to come out of our quarantine when possible and meet together and continue to form that community voice. There's power in being together. Okay, that's what we learn. I think it's like volume, right? If you're praying by yourself, it's one. That's louder, louder, louder. I think when we come together as a community, it, it creates a sweet-smelling sacrifice before God, and it increases the volume, you know, for God to hear what's going on. So, uh, especially now, to encourage one another. These are three good things, loving good works, right, and encouragement. This is pretty much the bulk of what God wants for us and from us, isn't it? I mean, you can get it all complicated as much as you want, but uh, this is about what it is, is to love one another, do good stuff, and encourage each other every day. So we want to continue to meet together, to motivate each other for that. We want to pray together, worship together. Uh, worship is powerful, isn't it? It's warfare. Things happen when you worship. That won't happen if you don't. All right? And then this scripture, uh, we look through the fact that when they worship, they heard from the Holy Spirit, and we want to be a part of that number that, that is, a, is the, the holy club, the, those that walk in the paths of righteousness. Even though we look at stories in the, in the Bible of people that God used, we are also writing a story, are we not, of your own life, and you want it to be a good story that's worthy of Jesus Christ. What do you say? You don't want to just wander through life like I'm just here for no reason, but you're here for a reason and purpose, and you want to make sure that your story is a good story. All right, so let's see how far we get today. <clears throat> I love this verse from Jehoshaphat. It says, don't, the Lord says, don't be afraid or discouraged of this horrible situation they're in. But he says, the battle's not yours, but God's. Isn't it? It's still the same, isn't it? Yeah. Does that mean you still have to do battle? Yeah. Did Moses, did Moses still raise his arms in prayer for the battle? Did Joshua still go do battle? Yeah, but the victory belongs to the Lord. We do our part. God does his part. All glory to God. Amen? Tomorrow's March. March down, which means we've got to be in motion. We've got to be active in serving God and obeying God. And then it comes the victory. So now we get to king number three. It was in good. He's 25 years old. Can you be a good king at 25? I know. Young guy. <clears throat> uh, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And as I said over and over again, <clears throat> if you're reading through the Old Testament, the kings, it's rare that you see these words. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. You want that on your tombstone, don't you? Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Jotham's name means God is perfect. He is the son of Uzziah, the 11th king of Judah. Uh, he reigned about 16 years, I believe. He was a builder. <clears throat> he rebuilt the upper gate of the temple, did expensive, uh, extensive works, probably expensive too. <clears throat> Built towns in Judea, fortified them. He, we don't have a lot of information about him, but what little we do here is good news and refreshing news. Most importantly, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And that's a lot more than can be said about the other kings, all right? The other leadership of God's holy people and nation were horrible. Most of them polytheistic, idol-worshiping, perverted maniacs. 
were, there were maniacs. We were psychopaths. Uh, Jotham grew powerful because he walked steadfastly before the Lord. Because is a contingency, all right? Because means something, doesn't it? It's cause and effect. Because he walked steadfastly before the Lord, God blessed him, okay? It wasn't just saying words. It wasn't just, you know, pointing out different scriptures. He walked steadfastly with the Lord and he grew powerful and prosperous. Does God want you prosperous? He could, right? He wants you to walk steadfastly before him regardless of your financial condition. Are you with me? Some of the places that we minister to in the world are among the poorest people in the world, in the whole planet. But their prosperity is knowing Jesus Christ and having the true riches of the gift of eternal life. Now, Jotham lived <clears throat> in the time of Isaiah, Hosea, Amos, and Micah, very godly men. He listened to the word of God. He obeyed the word of God. He was steadfast. Can that be said about you? That Are you walking steadfastly before the Lord in this time of corruption in his country? Uh, there's a graphic picture of the moral depravity. You can just read through those prophets there and see what's going on there. The next king we want to look at is Hezekiah. But first, <clears throat> we have the son of Jotham is Ahaz. Now, Ahaz ends up being the absolute worst king of all. The guy is terrible. The son of such a good and godly man is so horrible uh, he was 20 years old when he came. He, did, he didn't do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He walked in the way of the kings of Israel. What does that mean? Polytheism, idol worshiping, total disrespect for the word of God and God. That when you talk about the kings of Israel, like we said, none of them are any good in the ten kingdoms in the north. Listen to this. He even sacrificed his son in the fire. They... Their gods, their demons required human sacrifice and often child sacrifice. So here's the king of, of uh, Judah offered child sacrifice, following the detestable ways of the nations. That's what they did, <clears throat> that the Lord had driven out. He offered sacrifices, burned incense, high places, hilltops, under every spreading tree. So... What Jotham tried to do and to bring people to the Lord was undone by Ahaz. Fortunately, as luck has it, he died. Guess what? Newsflash, everybody dies, right? What happens to you after you die depends on what you do when you live. I don't want to be in Ahaz's shoes. Now, Ahaz had a son named Hezekiah. This is the guy we want to get to. Succeed him as king. He's the 13th king of Judah. Lucky 13, one of the greatest kings since King David. And his mother <clears throat> was the daughter of Zechariah. Hold on one second. And the good news is he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. So he was one of Judah's few godly kings. 
<clears throat> Check it out. Okay, you ready? He's the son of a depraved, idol-worshipping, polytheistic father, maniac. Okay? Really? Come on. He grew up in a corrupt court. Uh, his father had given the kingdom over to idolatry. His youth was spent pampered and spoiled in a royal court, surrounded by crooked leadership. He had very, decent, very few decent role models. The temple had been desecrated by his own father, and they brought idols into the temple in Jerusalem. How, how did he turn out so good? With such a bad father. His mother was the daughter of Zechariah the prophet. But also, something had to happen in his life that caused him to be motivated in such a way to follow God. And that's what we would call being born again, being changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. So he's not just a, you know, a pagan, idol-worshiping, cultural fool. He was full of the Holy Spirit evidenced by his righteous deeds, which is an authentic relationship with God, okay? Authentic relationship with the Creator. Now, such an ungodly man could have such a godly son is the grace of God. And so we also see the loving nurture of a good mother is powerful in the formation of godly character. And we also want to know this. You don't need to follow the sins of your fathers, you can be better than your father if your father was evil. You can be the dad you've always wanted, okay? You grow up and go, I wish my parents were like this. Well, be that parent. Be the parent you wanted, and we don't need to be formed or shaped by bad parenting. This is important, that we can be free from generational habits. It's important. We're told that Isaiah was one of Hezekiah's tutors. Can you imagine that? Micah was also prophesying at this time. And what we also want to see is that God is not far away from, from us, even in the worst of times. Okay? God does not cease to be God because Ahaz was corrupt as a leader and as a father. And God is always there for restoration and redemption. Did God forsake them? No. They forsook God. Is God's love still available? Yes, it is. God was still in Jerusalem with the young prince in the midst of this political and social corruption. Is God able to be with us in similar situations? What do you say? We have to say yes. You can stay strong for Jesus in a twisted, secular environment. No matter the mountain of corruption around you, there is grace to help you stand solid in tough times. You don't need to follow the herd. You can be a herd of one. I am my own herd. Be a leader of what is good. Be the only one if necessary. Now, upon coming to the throne in his very first month, he's going to clean the temple, open the doors, repair them. He's going to get all the priests and Levites together. And he says, here's what we got to do. Two things. Consecrate yourselves and consecrate the temple. All right? 
two things. That still needs to be done, does it not? <clears throat> Remove all defilement from the sanctuary. This reminds me of New Testament, right? 1 Corinthians 6.19, you are now the temple. You're the sanctuary of God. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. God is in you. If you've asked God to forgive your sins, if you ask God to fill you with the Holy Spirit, and you've had that experience of the presence of God, God dwells in you. How many know what I'm talking about? All over the world, millions and millions of people for thousands and thousands of years will raise their hand on that question and say, I know what that means. To be born again, I know what it means to have the Holy Spirit in your life. I know what it is to have my mountains of sins forgiven. It feels good. Amen. Temple of the Holy Spirit. You're not your own. Praise God. I belong to God. Aren't you glad about that? Bought with a price, the price of the blood of Jesus Christ on Calvary. I'm thankful. So as a result of that, we need to purge and consecrate ourselves, cleanse this temple, the sanctuary, flee every sin. Sexual immorality is just one sin. Flee them all, right? Everyone. He who commits sexual immorality is sins against his own body. He also sins against God. Is that a problem in our culture? Yes. Is it a problem in every culture? Yes. Is it a universal problem? Yes. Has it always been since the dawn of time? Yeah. Nothing new, ladies and gentlemen. This is, this is even 2,000 years ago. Same problem today. We have to consecrate ourselves, consecrate this temple, get rid of everything impure, fill it up, make it a temple of the Holy Spirit. What do you say? Amen. So they did that. They all got together. Why should they assemble? Because they can consecrate themselves together, right? Why, Why do we still assemble? Because we want to come and consecrate ourselves to the purposes that God has for us, to motivate ourselves to loving good deeds, right? It's, we're better together, are we not? We're not supposed to be lone rangers. Also be up there by yourself. Consecrate themselves, purify the temple, follow the word of the Lord. I mean, that's a good sermon right there, and this is what, 2,500 years ago? <laughs> they went to the sanctuary to purify it. Now, check it out. They brought out of the courtyard everything unclean that they found in the temple. I mean, sometimes you have to go through your heart and your life and your mind, and you have to look at what's going on in there, and you should clean it up. What do you say? You should not give in to temptation, should you? No. You should consecrate yourself. You should make sure that you're purifying your temple and keeping it pure, because blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. We have an interest, a vested interest in a pure heart. Follow the word of the Lord and clean out everything that's in your temple that doesn't belong there. There's all kinds of bad stuff in there, right? What do you say? We're not all good, are we? Not yet, except for Bob. Rosella. So I told a story years ago, but... I used to travel all over Mexico and many parts of the world, and I'd collect art objects. So I had traveled up and down extensively, little towns. I, bought, I had a mask collection, straw mask, colorful mask, oh, art objects, buy them. 
I was in Mexico City and we went to the pyramids where we climbed up the top of Teotihuacan uh, Pyramid and I bought this beautiful copper plate up there from some little vendor and had all this stuff and you know having my house and I had a briefcase of you know Aztec art uh, on my you know hand engraved on my my briefcase and I was going to Bible school with this suitcase this briefcase full of my my Bible books and stuff I was studying scripture and uh, I kind of had a revelation of this one day and I'm going you know what those masks are used in voodoo and witchcraft and I go, you know what? This copper plate has the Aztec calendar in the middle of it is the sun god that they worship with human sacrifice. And on my briefcase, I had the wind god. I had the sun god. You know, they're all pictorial things. I go, well, in probably in a more modern time, these would be pentagrams, right? I'm going to Bible college with demons on my briefcase. I don't think that looks very good. So I collected it all. I had little fat Buddhas, and I had all kinds of objects that I got from all over the place. Expensive things. I thought, I don't know if I should burn all of these or something, but I don't, want to, I don't want to give them to anybody, right? Wouldn't wish this on anybody. So Irma and I took them all in the backyard and, and burned everything. Went to the whole house of everything unclean that was in the temple, everything that shouldn't be in the house of God. There's other things, too. You know, you talk about magazines and music and videos and stuff. doesn't have a place in your house. You know, if it's unclean, probably should get rid of it. So I, I cleaned all my art objects out and burned them. And I swear I heard screaming coming out from my barbecue. <laughs> so I, I, I'm just going to leave that there for you. You determine what you want to do with that. Uh, so they get, okay, we did it. We purified the entire temple. They reported back. So then the next morning, they all got together, and they went up to the temple of the Lord. And this is a part that I want us to pay attention to because we like to worship God here, do we not? We like to sing. We like to get... The uh, piano going, I want my drummer back, I want a saxophone, I want a violin, I want some stuff here, okay? <laughs> I want to go big. They sang and they played and they bowed in worship and they offered sacrifices and they knelt down and they worshiped and they praised the Lord with the words of David and they sang praises with gladness, bowed their heads and worship. Isn't that awesome? Come and bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the Lord. What a cheerful time in this restoration and in this consecration. What happened was a renewal of worship, right? We need a renewal of worship, a renewal of prayer. If you don't worship, you don't know what you're missing. So there's a new renewal that comes from consecration, cleaning out the temple, getting the sanctuary clean, getting some more room for the Holy Spirit in there, and then worship happens, spontaneously, you will want to worship God, all right? Now, this made me think of some things in the New Testament, Ephesians 5, where it says, hey, speak to one another with psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. How's that any different than, than what Hezekiah was doing, right? Give thanks to God for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, everything good, of course, right? But we see the same principle, the power of using the psalms, the spiritual songs, to make music 
and to give thanks to God in the name of Jesus Christ. Not just there, but in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of God dwell in you. Be directed by the word of God. Admonish one another. Encourage one another with wisdom, right? Sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Sing in tongues. Sing with praise to God, with gratitude in your heart. Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God. If we could just do this two things here, right? Be more musical and be more thankful. Your life will change. We are, we are the temple. We are living stones. We're a holy priesthood that we should offer spiritual sacrifices. When we come here and worship God, you should feel like a priest before God offering sacrifices to him. What do you say? All right. So, the ten tribes, we said, were conquered by Assyria, 722 B.C. And following that, uh, Hezekiah was going to invite everybody that was remaining from the tribes in the north to come to Jerusalem to keep the Passover. So, Hezekiah knew that everything his dad did was evil and corrupt. And Hezekiah set out to undo the, everything that his father did. Okay, he's not following in that footsteps. He didn't follow in his father's footsteps. He could break away from the generational habits, and he could be his own man. Are you with me? There's good examples and bad examples. You know what I'm saying? You can learn from a bad example what not to do. Okay, Don't do what Ahaz did. It's not dishonoring your parents to acknowledge their weaknesses. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat the sin of its leader. So it's not wrong to call evil evil, right? Parents can do wrong things. We're parents, just older people, right? They're you older. Anybody can do wrong things, even the kings of God's chosen people. However, even if your parents are the worst sinners in the world... You don't need to follow in those footsteps. You can be better with God's help. What do you say? So check it out. He is going to send letters throughout the country inviting them to come to Jerusalem to keep the Passover. He's still the God of Israel, okay? And at the king's command, couriers went throughout Israel and Judah with letters from the king. And I love this letter. I had to put it in here for you. Look what this letter says, okay? People of Israel return to God. Isn't that the prophetic message all the time? Isn't that what John the Baptist preached? Isn't that what Jesus preached? Yes. Return to the Lord. Check it out. He may return to you. This is even after they've been so disobedient that 10 northern tribes are conquered and taken. Most of them are deported. There's still some scattering of people remaining, didn't get taken away. He says, you've escaped the hands of the Syrians, okay? Don't be like your fathers. Don't be like your brothers who are unfaithful to the Lord. Don't be stiff-necked as your fathers were, the ones that were carried off, evicted from Israel. Submit to the Lord. That's still a powerful word. That's still the right thing to do. 
that's still a good sermon, submit to the Lord, consecrate yourself, consecrate your temple. Don't be stiff-necked, which means don't be stubborn. Come to the sanctuary. Serve the Lord. Return to the Lord. You'll be shown compassion, right, by your captors. Look at this. Your children will be shown compassion by the captors and come back to the land. He's even holding out a promise that if the, the remnant of the northern tribe would come to the Lord, that they might even be able to see their families again that have been taken captive. Why? Because the Lord, your God, is gracious and compassionate. He will not turn his face from you if you return to him. That's powerful. All right? 2,500 years ago, even after all the sinning that they've done, after all the idolatry, after all the destruction, he says, hey, come back. I want you back. So he sent couriers from city to city, through Ephraim, Manasseh, Zebulun. And what did they do? Laughed them to scorn and mocked them. However, some men of Asher, Manasseh, Zebulun, humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem which is really interesting to me for a lot of reasons. But one, you want to see that some of the people in the northern tribes of Israel had not been taken captive by Assyria. Are you with me? And some of those people were a part of the remnant or a part of those who continued to serve God in spite of everything and upon invitation came down to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. That's encouraging, isn't it? So for me, that means that when the northern kingdom was deported, among that group were also people that were believers. So these couriers are going to take these letters from Judah, which is down here in the bright green, and they're going to go up in the north, and they're going to invite everybody down to the big party at the Passover. The message was rejected by some. The message was received by some. This is the importance of going on mission trips. It's important of bringing the word out is so that the word can be heard and people can repent. They got to they they know, right? So as I said, this would mean that <clears throat> some of these people that were taken into Assyria and spread out in this captivity, you can see it up there, were transplanted Jews, many of them were still faithful to Yahweh in spite of the difficulties. That's good. And in the second eviction, the orange is when they were taken down into Babylon. So that entire area there, the Mesopotamian area, Assyria, Iran, Iraq, Media, Persia, was now populated by large number of Jews. Now, <clears throat> many of them were faithful to Yahweh. How do we know? How would you know? Well, if some of them came down to Jerusalem when Hezekiah asked them, you can bet that some of those that were spread throughout the eastern part of the empire were also believers. Can, I think we could safely assume that. And another way we can see that is in the list of people that came to 
the Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, but you can see the extent of the Assyrian Empire. Now, what we also want to appreciate, and this is important for when we get actually into Matthew's gospel, is that these are Aramaic-speaking people. Okay, this is the, the English of that entire world is Aramaic. Okay, it's an ancient language, it's trade language, it's business language, all the way down to Egypt. You can see Syria, parts of Turkey, all the way down the Tigris Euphrates, the height of the Assyrian Empire, Aramaic speaking people. Okay? Now, check us out. You'll be happy about this. You ready? Who's ready? <laughs> Boom. So when you look at Acts chapter 2 and it talks about the fact that Jews came to Jerusalem for the Passover from every nation in their heaven, look where they come from. They come from Mesopotamia, Tigris, Euphrates. They come from Anatolia, uh, Syria, Parthian, Medes, Arabs, Egypt, Libya, okay? So in this dispersion from 722 and the other one from 586, you have Jews spread throughout all the world, which were the preaching points for the apostles and early believers who went out into the world to preach the gospel. Where did they go? To the Jew first, all right? <clears throat> and this entire group, pretty much, except for Rome, and you can see Greece was a part of the Roman Empire. I mean, the whole thing was Roman Empire at the time of Christ, but uh, this is Aramaic-speaking people groups, all right? And that's important. I'll tell you later. Look how much time I have left. You want to see it on their map? It's so great. You can get stuff like this. You, you used to have to go to libraries and read books to get stuff like this. You don't know how wonderful it is to go on the Internet and go, give me a map of the nations that were in Acts chapter 2. I mean, you got them? I'm telling you. No, I'm so happy. I got all kinds of them. Look at them. Look how far they go. Way over by the Caspian Sea. Way up by the Black Sea. Okay? These are nations that came to... Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. It's important that you realize that the gospel went as much east as it did west. All right? You happy about that? Anybody? <clears throat> okay, good. So now, what do I got? 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah, and what did he do? Captured them. That's bad news. Okay? They say it's somewhere like 46 cities already captured, already attacked, already in the hands of the king of Assyria. Some bad, bad people rolling through the region, <clears throat> conquering everything. But for some reason, historically, Sennacherib was not able to conquer Jerusalem. Okay? He conquered the entire ten tribes in the north, deported them. He attacked all the cities of Judah, conquered them. For some strange reason, he was not able to conquer Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? That's a historic fact. There's no explanation 
why the cruel and overpowering Assyrians did not crush the city of Judah and kill King Hezekiah. Okay? Now, just as a sidebar, remember the couriers went with the letters? Okay. Appreciate the fact that the king could write letters and mail them and get them all over the country. Okay? Sometimes we think, oh, they're so primitive back in those days. They didn't have any writing materials. They, they couldn't get letters out into the world. But what do you see? 700 years before Christ, the king says, hey, write me a bunch of letters, and I'm going to send them out to all the nations. I'm going to go up to Manasseh. We're going to go up to Zebulun. We're going to Naphtali. Every city, it said, was to receive one of these letters as invitation. How many letters do you got to write? How many times do you got to copy it? How many couriers do you have? Could you do that? Yeah, it was no-brainer, no big deal. They didn't go, oh, no. No, we can't do that. We don't know how to write. And we don't have any paper. And that, you know how far that is to go all the way up a Galilee and take a little letter up there? No, we better not do that. No, it was just normal business practice like it is today. Just because things are facilitated by Internet, you know, doesn't mean they didn't do it in the exact same way, you know, 2,000 years ago. It's all the same. All the amount of documentation that you create was still created back in those days. I want you to see how effortlessly it was for that to happen, for this amount of production of documents to be copied and written and sent out throughout the world. Okay? Chris, what do you think? Good? <clears throat> All right. So what was the deal here? What happened? Now, Hezekiah knows the Assyrians are coming. He met with his leaders, fortified Jerusalem. The Assyrian army, 185,000 soldiers. Is that a lot of soldiers? That's a lot of swords, a lot of shields. This army of 185,000 crazed maniacs, world-conquering. They've already conquered the north. They've already conquered all of Babylon, all the way down. They've been over to Egypt. They've got a tremendous empire. One little city left, right? One tiny little plum, surrounded by 185,000 soldiers, 30 miles away, okay? planning their siege of Jerusalem. The odds are not good. What do you say? Amen. It's got to be terrifying. They've already conquered everything in the world. One little city left. Jerusalem. They had no means of escape. Where are they going to go? <laughs> they got almost 200,000 soldiers surrounding them. But the prophet Isaiah had already told Hezekiah that God was going to de deliver Judah and defend Jerusalem for the sake of King David and also for the sake of the Christ who was to come from King David. We're in the genealogy. We're looking, you know, following this down to Christ. You know, Judah has to stand, right? We, this prophecy of a thousand years coming to Jesus Christ had to be fulfilled. This impossible prophecy. See how impossible this thing is? 
There's only one little city standing in the way of Sennacherib. <clears throat> so, they go, they pray, they seek God. Isaiah is there, and the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, and God told him to go back, tell Hezekiah, this is what the Lord says. I've heard your prayer. Is prayer important? Yeah. Absolutely. Should you pray in time of need? Why not? This is what the Lord God of your father David says. I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. I will heal you. That's awesome. And I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I'll defend this city for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. Yeah. Come on. Isn't that awesome? Why is it that Jerusalem was the only city left in the entire Palestinian, Levant, Mesopotamian area that wasn't defeated? Because God said, ain't going to happen. Right. Okay? <laughs> I will defend this city, God said. So then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army 30 miles away to go see King Hezekiah stopped at the upper pool within hearing of the people that have gathered themselves in the fortified city of Jerusalem. And Hezekiah commissioned three different people to go out and to meet this, these emissaries and to have a meeting. Okay, three of the Syrian uh, officials told Hezekiah, send out three of your officers and we'll arrange for terms of surrender. So we have these three guys, and one of them was Joah, the royal recorder. So I want you to see Joah is the recorder. Now, Josephus calls him the royal historian. So who is this guy? Why should he go to this very important meeting? He's going to write everything down. He's skilled at writing, at taking notes. He's like a a stenographer. Seems like he had pen and paper, right? If you're going to record it, you're going to write it on something. Papyrus, most likely. It means that he had the ability to take notes immediately at this conference. Perhaps if there was a peace agreement that was arranged, he could write it all down and they could negotiate it and have the minutes of that meeting. Now, who would imagine 700 years before Christ that you could have a stenographer who takes notes in a public meeting? Hmm? Would you imagine that possible? That's what he's doing. 700 years before Christ, they had the ability and the capacity for a guy to stand there and take notes in public, verbatim, word for word, accurate notes to take back to the king Hezekiah, and to report to him what was said at this meeting. It's not like, I don't know what he said. I forgot already. Was it, he's going to go away, or is he going to crush us away? I can't remember. <laughs> I mean, you'd want it. <laughs> and we find this document in Isaiah 36, 4 to 21, the exact story in the Bible that was written down, orally become written and conveyed to the king. So Joah would bring the handwritten document 
to Hezekiah, as I said, became a part of the Bible. So what I want you to do is see how effortlessly it was for someone to take word-for-word notes in an outdoor setting in an extemporaneous meeting 700 years before Christ. We've already seen what a literary culture this is. They kept records of the genealogies. They kept records of everything. And they wrote everything. And you have royal scribes and recorders who can write things as they're happening. Okay? Looks like that guy. Now, having said all that, Matthew's the first gospel in the New Testament for a reason. It's there because it was written first. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. That's the order of composition chronologically. It's been that way historically. However, in our modern era, they now tell us that Matthew did not even write a gospel. We had to wait 30 years for Mark to be the first gospel written. In fact, Matthew wasn't written until 80 AD or maybe 110, from 80 to 110. And Matthew didn't even write it. They just called it Matthew's gospel to give it some kind of authority. So in this 30-year period between Jesus and Mark, there's supposed to be all these legends and embellishment and all this fabrication of lies and fraud that creates the Jesus of the New Testament. So in order for that to be bought and sold, you have to get away, you have to get rid of Matthew first, okay? And so supposedly we had to wait 30 years for Mark, who's a non-apostle, who's a non-eyewitness, to write the first gospel about Jesus Christ. And eventually, none of the apostles wrote anything, except for maybe later John, you know, 90 or so, which is what, 60 years after Christ. Are you with me? That's ridiculous. Okay? Absolutely ridiculous. The Mark first wrote first is a ridiculous hypothesis that wreaks havoc on the New Testament, creates chaos everywhere. But think think about it for a second. You ready? You thinking? Mark, by himself, a non-eyewitness, could find the money, the paper, and the pen to spontaneous make a gospel on the spur of the moment. Because they said, give us a copy of Peter's preaching. He was able to do it. Oh, no. That's so hard to do. I don't know how he got the paper to do that and the funding for it. Mark could do it, right? <laughs> and it was considered canonical gospel. Think about Luke. What do we learn about Luke? Luke says, I've researched oral and written documents, and I put it all together in the gospel and the Acts of the Apostles of Theological History. 28 chapters, gospel, Luke, 28 chapters, Acts of the Apostles. How long did it take Luke, all by his little lonesome self, to write 56 chapters of Bible? Maybe four years? Two years in Caesarea Palestine when Paul was arrested, another two years in Rome, maybe four. Didn't take him 40. This whole thing that it takes somebody 20 years to write 16 chapters or 20 chapters or a letter is absolutely unfounded and ridiculous, okay? 
Luke was able to publish it all on his own. And think about Paul. How many letters did Paul publish instantly? How long did it take Paul to write the Epistle to the Romans, the 16 chapters? Didn't take him 20 years, did it? Could you imagine? How timely would that epistle be to write to the Romans if it took him 20 years to do it? Because he's so long. That was such a long thing to do. So hard. I'm not buying it. Keep that in your back pocket for later, okay? It's going to help us when we get into the New Testament, which we actually are in the New Testament. Now, so in this meeting, they're all there, right? Let's come back after that diatribe. So the Hebrew-speaking representatives of Hezekiah said, speak to us in Aramaic. We understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew because everyone will hear what you're saying. And we don't want to frighten the people that are hearing this conversation. But the officers refused to speak in Aramaic, which was the trade language of the day. Uh, but they used Hebrew, which was that local language. So the Assyrians wanted the Hebrew-speaking people listening on the wall to hear everything that was going on. Now check it out. They're bilingual. Is that a problem? No. No, it's not. <laughs> the Assyrian leaders knew Hebrew language. The Hebrew leaders knew Aramaic language. They could converse in it. So Sennacherib's chief, the guy, the chief guy there says, do you think my master sent this message on to you? He wants everybody to hear what we have to say because we're going to put this city under siege and they're going to suffer with you and you're going to be so hungry, you're going to eat your own dung and you're going to drink your own urine. That's what happens. War is hell. So realizing the seriousness of this situation, the representatives from Hezekiah said, no, don't, don't talk in, in Hebrew. Let's talk in Aramaic so they can't hear you say this. He goes, no, I want them all to, I want them all to say this. So this is what Josephus says. <clears throat> the chief guy made this speech in the Hebrew tongue because he was skillful in that language. Now, Eliakim was one of the representatives from Hezekiah. He was afraid lest the multitude should hear him be disturbed. So he said, speak in the Syrian tongue. So Syrian Aramaic are the same thing. They're, they're synonymous terms, just so you know. This, this, a Syrian empire speaks Syrian tongue, speaks Aramaic. But the general said, hey, no. And he made his answer with a greater and louder voice, but in the Hebrew tongue. So much for this little tete-a-tete -tete going on. Hey, you up there, you going to eat your dung. <laughs> Commander stood and called out in Hebrew, hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Okay, check out what the king says. Don't let Hezekiah deceive you. Check it out. Don't trust in the Lord, okay? Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord. The Lord, when he says the Lord will deliver us, this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. That's the prophecy from Isaiah. But he says, don't, let, don't be deceived. We're going to kick booty, and we're going to roll over you like we have everybody else. 
The Lord is not going to deliver you. <sighs> Take the letter back. That Joe out of the recorder went, told him what the field commander had said, he showed him the letter. Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers, read it. So what is he going to do? He did the right thing. He went to the temple to pray, right? This is extremely important that you see this. This is a habit of his. And he spread it out before the Lord, which I think is a good practice. If you've got stuff going on in your life that's causing you grief and trouble, write it all down, put it out before the Lord. One of the things we like to do at our end of the month Thursday prayer meeting is just come lay everything out before the Lord. You know, thankful for what he's done this month and new month, things coming up. Just say, hey, God, we believe that you're in charge of all this. We're just coming here to worship you and to pray to you and put it all out in front of you. Seriously. Whatever it is that you got, just, just lay it all there. Lay it all out. He prayed to God, God of Israel. You alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You made heaven and earth. It's all his, the universe. Keeps getting bigger, doesn't matter. God's the maker of it all. Give ear, O Lord. Open your eyes. Listen, listen to what Sennacherib is saying. He's insulting you, right? Now, this is the perfect time for a panic attack. Huh? 185,000 men, everybody already defeated, crazy guy at your door telling you he's going to make you drink your urine and eat your own dung. <sighs> overwhelming, nowhere to go, nothing you could possibly do. What a perfect time for a panic attack, right? But in your panic, what do you do? Go to the Lord. Okay, you can't get through life without any panic. You can't get through life without any anxiety. You're not going to get through life without any worry, but don't leave it there, right? In your panic, pray. In your worry, take it to the Lord. In your situation, write it all out. Here's how bad my situation is. I'm going to lay it before Jesus. Perfect time to pray. Now check this out. What do you say? He says, look at this is what's true. The Assyrians have laid waste of nations. Okay? That's history. You can read it on the internet. They've thrown their gods and, and lands. Nations and lands. They've taken their other gods, destroyed them. Uh, now, Lord, deliver us from his hands so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are God alone. Okay, what's important here is that you can be truthful about your situation. All right? Is it a bad situation? Terrible situation. There's no, there's no way out of this. Now, faith does not pretend that nothing is wrong, okay? Faith does not pretend that you're not in a difficult situation or that this situation is overwhelming or I'm in a panic right now about what I'm going through. Lay out the facts of the situation squarely. This is exactly what we're facing right now. This is what's true, and it's a reality. It's not a negative confession to note the obvious difficulty, all right? 
It's not negative. He's saying this is the way it is. This is insurmountable. We're surrounded. This is bad news. They've killed everybody. They're at our doorstep. That's the facts. There's 185,000 man army seeking to destroy us. The crisis does not change by ignoring it, okay? Or by pretending like it's not happening, okay? Pretense is not the measure of faith. If you're sick, you're sick. You got a financial problem, you got a financial problem. You got dysfunction in your family, you got dysfunction in your family. Let's pray about it. If you're sick, let's pray about it, right? You got, you got some difficulty in life, let's pray about that. You're in a panic situation, let's pray about that. It's important that we don't ignore or pretend like it's not happening. Okay? Pretense is not a measure of faith. What changes in the crisis is Christ. Amen. Go to the throne of God in prayer for grace and mercy in time of need. Prayer changes things. All right? Come before the Lord, tell God exactly what's going on. Like, he doesn't know. And Isaiah sent a message. And this is what the Lord says. God says, I've heard your prayer about Sennacherib, king of Assyria. This is the word of the Lord has spoken against him. Now, this is incredible, okay? You can go read it. There's a longer version. I'm just going to show you a small piece of it which most likely was written down by somebody, recorded and kept, all right, on the spot. Why not? This is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with a shield or build a siege ramp against it. He's going to return by the way he came. He will not enter the city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for the sake of of David, my servant. Come on. Check it out. That would, now, a part of the confidence that Hezekiah can have in this word is the fact that he is walking steadfastly before the Lord. Are you with me? He's not Ahaz worshiping idols and coming to the God of Israel in time of need because his world's falling apart because of his own doing. Hezekiah is following the Lord. He's consecrated the temple. He's consecrated the singers are worshiping God. They're a part of this thing. He goes, I can have confidence in this word because our confidence is in the Lord. What do you say? Okay, it's important that you keep that in mind. I will defend this city and save it. Check it out. That night, that very night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. They got up the next morning, everybody's dead. What? <laughs> I know, it's like, wait, what? <laughs> so Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp, withdrew, and returned to Nineveh and stayed there. Now, this written in the Second Kings, how's that? 500 years before Christ, when was Hezekiah? Somewhere around there. Here's what Josephus says about it, okay? Now, Josephus is writing in around A.D. 75, which is to mean that this event 
has now been in circulation for at least five, six hundred years, okay? So that the history of this is attested in human history, okay? So Jerusalem didn't fall. Jerusalem continued to exist after this attack by Sennacherib. So it says Sennacherib was coming back with his army from Egypt. He's been in Egypt at a war. He's coming back to Jerusalem, found his general there, and, a, and in danger, for God had sent a pestilential distemper among his army, which is a plague, uh, on the very first night of the siege. Okay? <laughs> so from Josephus' view, the fact of the matter is, at the end of the day, you have 185,000 people dead. Isn't that amazing? How does that happen? So Sennacherib, in dread, agony, and fear, fled with the rest of his forces in his own kingdom to the city of Nineveh. And after a while, he's worshiping his demon gods. His sons came and killed him. Nice family. The kind you'd want to invite over for Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah, kill, kill their own dad. So let's think about the Assyrian Empire. It's important for us when we come to the New Testament and understand the spread of the gospel in the world. The Assyrian Empire was pretty huge for a long time, most dominant power in the world, stretched, as we saw in that picture that I showed you, all the way from Turkey all the way over to uh, Iran to the east, Mesopotamia, Egypt, Arabian Peninsula, all the Mesopotamian culture was affected by that religious uh, their religious efforts, okay? So the language of that is Aramaic, or lingua franca, which means the English of the day. That's the language everyone spoke. Now, eventually, Nineveh is sacked, Haran, Carchemish, and the Assyrian Empire collapsed. But in this period, the Syriac language, which is Aramaic, and that script evolved and became the vehicle for the spread of Syriac Christianity throughout the Near East, which is important for all of us because no one will tell you this. Okay? Now, these Christians, from the very beginning... The apostles spoke Aramaic. Jesus spoke Aramaic. They spoke Aramaic all to the east and somewhat in uh, northern Egypt and a little, little part of where Paul would be from in Turkey. The gospel was to the Jew first. It would go out in Aramaic first of all. And then by this time, uh, Greek language was also a very large language, mostly in the west. Why not translate it into Greek? <clears throat> so... What I have right here is the Holy Bible translated from the Aramaic. Isn't that interesting? So this, the, the, the Syrian Orthodox Church, the Church of the East, still use Aramaic scriptures in their liturgies. They're still Aramaic-speaking people. Remember when Mel Gibson came out? And we were watching The Passion of the Christ in Aramaic. We thought how cool that was, this ancient dead language that no one uses anymore. How would you even know that existed, right? No, it still exists. People still use it. They still have liturgies. So this one was translated from Aramaic. Check it out. All of this at one time was handwritten. 
Can you imagine that? All of it. New Testament, the whole thing. Written, handwritten, in Aramaic. Um, huh? And to English. Yeah, I can't read it. Aramaic looks like, I don't know, top ramen to me when you look at it. <laughs> yeah, like I said, it looks like Greek to me, but Greek looks more uniform. It's, inc- it's, it's amazing to me. And it survived. So come to, come to find out there's Syrian Orthodox churches here in Los Angeles. There's tons of them. Yeah, I called a bunch of them. See how they're doing. Talked to a couple of their priests about the use of Aramaic and use of Aramaic in the home, and people still speak Aramaic and in Iran, different parts of the world, and, and the whole thing. I go, this is this is a blank spot in my education, right? Don't even know this this exists. And what they say is, let me see if I have it. Okay, so now when Christianity went out, as we're going to look at eventually in the first century, into the east to these different places, the early converts had uh, Eastern Rite, uh, Christianity, Church of the East, and Syrian Orthodox Church. They were, they were governed by, by the church over there. Church is huge in that part of the world. We just don't know about it. So you can see down here, uh, Aramaic areas, that whole area right there, which we've been looking at in terms of you know, Palestine, Syria, Mesopotamia. But they also sent missionaries out and even further than they gone, they went to India. There's actually Syrian Orthodox churches in India, China, and different parts of, of the world there. Isn't that amazing? So this whole area to the east would be Aramaic-speaking people. And if you're going to go to the Jew first, you'd want to take the gospel in the Aramaic language, which they say that these churches... Holy Apostolic Catholic Church of the East received the scriptures from the hands of the apostles themselves in the Aramaic original, the language spoken by our Lord Jesus himself, which has come down from biblical times without any change or revision. Pretty awesome, huh? So actually I have a new, a, two New Testaments that I bought, and I'm reading it, I go, man, this sounds like regular Bible, Right? And I thought, well, it should. It all came from the same source. You know, everybody complains about how many tags have been copied and how many blah, blah, blah. It's like we have so many manuscripts and so many different ways to check the veracity of the scriptures that come to us that we can look at this and go, this is an amazing book, right? However it came down. And we have over 4,500 different manuscripts, ancient manuscripts, that they can compare and go, yeah, this is the best text ever that you've ever had in the history of the world, closest to the most original. And these guys say, well, we have originals. <laughs> Pretty cool, huh? So we get a little picture of so many different things happening, but we want to see the, the worship and the prayer that was taking place and, you know, in your problems, come to God. I mean, that's the same thing, right? And the good kings are steadfast in walking before the Lord, and that's what we want to do. We want to be steadfast in following the Lord, following the word. We want to come, we want to get clean before God, and we want to serve him in our generation. What do you say? Father, we just thank you so much for 
the ability and the access we have to so much knowledge, Lord, that really helps our faith and helps us understand that the scriptures are accurate. And when they say that you died for our sins, that's the truth. Lord, that you rose again from the dead, that is the truth story. We're thankful, Lord, that we've encountered you by the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we do want to be motivated for love and good works. We pray that you continue to use us in our generation to compose a story that's worthy of the sacrifice you made. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Whew. All right. Let's uh, come before the Lord, shall we? And do just that. If you need something from God, you need to clean up something, why not take care of it right now as we worship before the Lord? there's a few areas in your temple that you've let darkness creep in kick it out in the name of Jesus get clean feel good right break every chain be free in Jesus come serve follow the Lord You are the 
Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. 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 And even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I can feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. You never stop. You never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop one more time. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop. You are here, touching every heart. I worship you. I worship you. You are here, healing every heart. I worship you. I worship you. You are here, turning lives around. I worship you. I worship you. You are here, mending every heart. I worship you. I worship you. You are the way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. You are the way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. One more time. You are the way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. You are the way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. 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 Thank you, God. Thank you for always keeping your promise and having us 
even in our roughest days and our darkest moments. Let me walk upon the waters wherever 
God, that we would come to you in times of trouble like these righteous kings. And I do pray, Lord, that we would take away also that if we had um, a family or parents who didn't follow you, Lord, that we wouldn't blame them, God, for our problems, but that we would learn from whatever happened, Lord, in the home, and that we would be more righteous, God, more wise because of the things we've learned in your word, God. And also, I also pray that we would ask you, Lord, for wisdom in the decisions we make and in the hard times. And thank you, God, so much for Kurt, that he's well uh, studied, Lord, and that he knows so much about these kings and this history. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you guys for coming. Everybody have a great week.